I'm sure there isn't anyone here who hasn't experienced uncertainty or doubt of some kind. It may not have been about your faith or the Bible or the gospel. It may have been about yourself. It may have been about another person. It may have been about your own ability. It may have been about whether something would work out for you or whether your exam results would be okay. Uncertainty, doubt, is a common human experience, even for Christians. And this is the theme that I'd like to address over the next two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday morning. I think it's an important subject, and that's why I want to take the two Sundays to try and cover it as best I can. This week, I want to deal with the title, The Certainty of Doubt. In other words, doubt as a reality for the Christian. And next week I want to deal with what I'm going to call an anatomy of doubt. A few members of the preaching workshop will know where I have stolen the title from. It comes from a sermon that we listened to recently called An Anatomy of Forgiveness, preached by William Augustus Jones Jr. I think a number of years before he died, a man in his late 80s, an African-American preacher, and we were all inspired by that sermon, An Anatomy of Doubt. I will not try and preach an anatomy, or Anatomy of Forgiveness was his sermon. I will not be trying to preach next week an anatomy of doubt in the same style as William Augustus Jones Jr. It would be a travesty, but I do hope it will be helpful because I want to take a more detailed look at some aspects of it than I'm doing this morning. This morning I want to just deal with more the general issue and theme. And I want to do so initially by, under this title, The Certainty of Doubt, looking first of all um, at the fact that for our father in the faith, it was part of believing. And for the ordinary Christian, it is part of life. Abraham is referred to as our father in the faith. The book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 and 12 says, By faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. What does the scripture say, Paul asks? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He says in verse 16, he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls all things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Paul says, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Was believing that simple? Well, actually the answer is no, it wasn't. And I'd like you to come with me on a journey through the book of Genesis 
to make the point, you might like to turn to page 13 of the copy of the Bible that's in the pew or Genesis chapter 12 uh, in your own Bible. And let's follow a little bit um, some of Abraham's life experience in the light of what we have just heard from the book of Hebrews and the book of Romans about Abraham's faith. Abraham was living, uh, he came originally from the area of the world that we would today know as Iraq. Um, he was living at this time up in the region of uh, the world that today we would know as sort of northern Syria. And it was there where his father Terah had traveled to um, that Abraham hears this call of God to head south to what the Bible refers to as the land of Canaan, which today we would know as the land of Israel. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. At 75, it's hardly the time for a new start, but Abraham was up for it and ready for it. When he gets to Canaan, the promise comes again. Look at verse 7 of the same chapter on page 13. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am going to give this land to your offspring. And Abram built an altar there to commemorate the Lord's visit with him. Uh, when Abraham and his nephew Lot separate, as they do in chapter 13, just over the page, um, verse 14 tells us that the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had departed from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Time goes by. More years go by. And you get a sense that Abram's beginning to struggle with this promise that God had made. And when you come to chapter 15 of Genesis, just over the page there on page 15, um, we see that the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, for I will protect you, and your reward will be very great. And look at what Abram says in verse 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will have to be my heir. You get the sense as this, past, as this is developing that by verse 8, the pressure is building on Abraham as to how much he can rely on what God has said to him and doubts are beginning to show. Look at verse 8. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? And what happens next is an account of um, a very interesting and from to our ears a rather bizarre event. Uh, where the Lord uh, tells Abram to bring a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He kills them, he cuts each one down the middle and he lays the halves side by side. And some vultures come down to eat the carcasses but Abram chases them away. 
And that evening, as the sun was going down, he falls into a deep sleep, and he saw a terrifying vision of darkness and horror. And then the Lord says to him that you can be sure that your, your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land, and they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. And God talks about punishing the nation that enslaves them, and how after four generations the descendants will return to the land in which Abraham is now. And it says in verse 17 that as Abram saw a smoking, as, as it became dark, he saw a smoking fire pot on a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram, which is what the symbolism of all of this is about, and said, I have given this land to your descendants. So that's his answer. Doesn't change his circumstances, but that's the way in which God answers him. It's clear too from verse, uh, 2 and verse 2 particularly of chapter 16, just over the page in page 16, that his wife Sarah was having difficulties in holding on to what God had promised as well. Because Sarah took her servant, an Egyptian woman named Hagar, and gave her to Abram so that she could bear his children. The Lord has kept me from having children. Sarah said to Abram, go sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed. It's the Abram agreed bit that is the indicator, I think, of where both Sarah and Abram were here at this moment in their lives with God's promise. Okay, so God had made a promise. It didn't seem to be coming to fruition. They clearly had doubts about how this was going to happen. And they have devised a method of fulfilling the promise themselves. When Abraham was 85 years old, that's 10 years old since the promise was made, Ishmael was born and family life becomes traumatic. Genesis chapter 17, at the beginning of chapter 17, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And as Abram listens to this, uh, and his name is changed in this particular encounter, and God makes this promise In verse 6, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Abraham is still struggling with it all. Look at verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarah, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abram said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Abraham laughed to himself in disbelief. Could you blame him? We know that he was a hundred when Isaac was born. Twenty-five years He waited. So what's going on? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is the writer of the book of Hebrews some kind of halfwit who pretends that the book of Genesis doesn't record Abraham's struggle with God's promises? Um, Does Paul not know his Old Testament or does Paul take a chance that the people in Rome who will read his letter won't know the Old Testament? And they'll not know that actually for Abraham this was a real struggle to believe, even though Paul talks about how he never wavered in unbelief. Is Paul into historical revisionism? Do you recognize this man of faith that's spoken of in Hebrews and Romans as you read the story from Genesis? 
It's not that the Bible contradicts itself. It's not that Paul and the writer of the Hebrews didn't know what they were talking about. And Paul would have taught consistently and constantly from the Old Testament scriptures and would have known them backwards. I think the point is that the Bible understands better than we evangelicals that faith and doubt are not necessarily mutually exclusive. The reality is that the person of faith can and will be afflicted with doubt and uncertainty from time to time. Doubts and uncertainty are not a denial of the faith. They are struggles with the faith. Doubts are not unbelief, though they may be disbelief, as the New Living translates Abraham's laughing. When disbelief is a sense of incredulity, or faith being overstretched on some matter. Paul's language in Romans 4 is very interesting. He says in verse 20, Yet he, that is Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. The idea of waver here is the idea of to be at odds with, to take issue with, from which appears the concept of doubt. He didn't waver through unbelief. He still believed in God. He still had a concept of God and God's capacity and power. He was struggling though. Stott puts it this way, if Abraham had given in to unbelief, he would then have wavered or been at odds with himself. Instead, he he strengthened himself by means of his faith when he was being stretched. That is to say, he glorified God by letting God be God and trusting him to be true to himself as the God of creation. Abraham worked through his doubts about what God was saying, his uncertainties, even about the physical possibilities of what God was saying in the context of his faith. In other words, Abraham did not become an unbeliever. He laughed in disbelief as a believer. He picked himself up and honoured God and was obedient to God, even in his ignorance. I don't want to press the point too much, but for Sarah to have got pregnant um, at the age of 90, and for Abram to have made her pregnant at the age of 100 or 99, takes not only considerable physical effort, but considerable faith that it's going to be worth the considerable effort. He might have struggled, but he did struggle as a believer. So what about the ordinary Christian? Doubt is a real and live issue for many Christians. McGrath, in a little book on doubt, says this. Doubt is probably a permanent feature of the Christian life. It's like some kind of spiritual growing pain. Sometimes it recedes into the background. At others it comes to the fore, making its presence felt with a vengeance. A medical practitioner once remarked that life was a permanent battle against all sorts of diseases with good health being little more than an ability to keep disease at bay. In many ways, the life of faith has the same shape, a permanent battle against doubt. He says in the conclusion of his book, Doubt is a subject which many Christians find both difficult and sensitive. They may see it as something shameful and disloyal, on the same level as heresy. As a result, it is often something that they don't or won't talk about. They suppress it. Others fall into the opposite trap. They get totally preoccupied by doubt. They get overwhelmed by it. They lose sight of God through concentrating upon themselves. 
Yet doubt is something too important to be treated in either of these ways. Viewed positively, doubt provides opportunities for spiritual growth. It tests your faith and shows you where it is vulnerable. It forces you to think about your faith and not just take it for granted. It stimulates you to strengthen the foundations of your relationship with God. For many Christians, the experience of doubt about their faith is traumatic. The reason that it is such a major issue is that being a Christian, for most Christians, is not recreational pursuit. Being a Christian is about the shaping of your whole worldview, your whole life, and indeed your whole lifestyle. It's certainly something that we go on a lot about here, and I suspect that a lot of you are here because that's something that we go on about here. Christianity is not simply a recreational pursuit. If you wanted recreational Christianity, you'd probably be having to go somewhere else. So doubt is not just a matter of interesting or difficult intellectual debate about something you believe. For most Christians, doubt is life-threatening. I use that term life-threatening deliberately. Doubt threatens the whole nature of your way of living and the whole structure and shape of life. I think this is one of the reasons why doubt is so seldom acknowledged or discussed in evangelical churches. It is too threatening. Anyway, as evangelicals, we don't cope well with doubt. Our preaching And evangelism carries conviction and certainty. Our theology tends to be cast iron secure, summarized succinctly in words that are watertight, or as watertight as you can make words. Our concept of church is, after all, the concept of a gathered company of believers. So at every level, we are doubt-averse. Our evangelism, our theology, and even our concept of the church exclude the sense of any room for doubt or uncertainty. We tolerate variation of thought and opinion, but only really within very narrow parameters. It's a brave and in some situations a foolish person who publicly admits to having doubts in church. Most of us, I think, would be terrified or appalled to admit that we laughed to ourselves in disbelief, which is what it says of Abram about anything to do with our faith. Scripture, and therefore God, is not afraid of addressing the fact that this is a reality for the ordinary Christian. And when Christians start going off asking questions they've never asked before, it can be very life-threatening. Doubts can arise for very many reasons. They can arise because of bad experiences in life because of hurts or confusions or crisis. Doubts can arise, uncertainty can arise because of new experiences in life. Not necessarily bad ones, new experiences like further education, where you encounter new and different worldviews you weren't aware of before. Or exposure to other cultures as a new experience, through which we end up questioning a lot of the ideas and practice and belief that we have grown up with and taken for granted. Even missionaries can have a crisis of faith. Exposure to different worldviews can raise questions about the role of culture and subculture and tradition and family traditions and strong personalities that have shaped who we are and what we believe. 
as opposed to whether they are consciously, objectively, personal belief or commitment on our part. Spiritual apathy and neglect can be the soil in which doubt and uncertainty take roots. And what we end up doing is rationalizing our apathy under the guise of uncertainty or doubts. All of these, and I suspect a host of other things, can be the source of real and painful doubt and uncertainty, which is part of being human, even when you're a Christian. Next week I'll be returning to the subject, as I said, and I want to be more specific about some of the causes and responses to doubt. But this week I wish to briefly make two points in closing. First of all, the challenge to the church, and secondly, the challenge to the individual. It seems to me that if the scriptures can cope with disbelief, and doubt in some of its key characters like Abraham, we as a church should be able to address openly these issues. I don't mean that I should be able to preach about doubt. I mean you and I should be able to express it within the context and safety of the church. Many years ago we ran a series called Help My Unbelief. I think one of my regrets reflecting on my years here is that we didn't make that an integral part of church life, something which ran more regularly. To have a forum in which we explore the dangerous, the disturbing, the challenging concepts within the life of the church would actually be a healthy thing. But in the absence of any such structured provision, there still needs to be the capacity to speak freely and be taken seriously without fear of being ostracized or patronized. Bad experiences of life cause hurts, confusion, anger, and sometimes a crisis of faith. New experiences and exposures in life cause clashes of worldviews through which a lot of our unquestioned ideas and beliefs are challenged. These are facts of life. They are part of being human. These are facts of church life. And they are part of the life of faith. So let's ensure as a church that we're building a sympathetic environment for the expression and addressing of such experiences and issues. And let's not be afraid. But there's also the challenge to the individual. And I think the challenge to the individual is to begin to weed out or work through what exactly is going on in our heads. Often we're not really very good at seeing what lies behind our struggles. We're often much too close to the situation to be able to see what it is that is affecting us the most. We have to do some serious thinking about whether it's those bad experiences in life or new experiences which create a clash of worldviews that lies at the root of a crisis of faith. It's often hard to discern what is going on within us. I well remember the context of a crisis which hit when I was doing uh, the sociology of religion many, many years ago at uni. Well, it wasn't uni, it was the Polytech in those days. It's since got upgraded to the University of Ulster. Christianity had become for me, by the definition of the sociologists of religion, nothing more than a structure to life, an environment in which to live without any engagement of the head and the heart. It took me a long time to work out and work through it. The entire time, though, it felt like it was simply unbelief. The thing was, I had grown very comfortable living in a way of living. Whether God existed or not was largely irrelevant. 
I didn't really need him. I had everything else, all the social structures in place that supported me. We have to do some honest self-appraisal and assess if it's spiritual apathy and neglect that lies at the root of our experiences. Certainly, and we'll return to this next week, we need to think through the logic of our disbelief and make sure that the tail isn't wagging the dog. In other words, that we aren't in such a spiritual condition that uncertainty or doubt controls us as opposed to uncertainty or doubt being part of us. Sometimes we make illogical leaps in dealing with uncertainty and doubt. Not least because of the panic and pain that doubt can bring. Questions of why bad things happen become questions about the existence of God. Without any necessarily logical connection. Questions over what we took for granted become assumptions that nothing we believed is true. Without necessarily there being a logical connection. Neglect of our spiritual lives often leads to the conclusion that the spiritual is a delusion. And there's no logical connection between those two either. Usually, there is neither logic or reason to the conclusions we reach when we're in a panic situation. We need to be measured in our dealing with doubt and uncertainty. And I want to finish where I started with Abraham. How did Abraham hang on? I have to confess I'm fascinated by this. We have the Bible, and we struggle with the Bible. But Abraham didn't have the Bible. He didn't have anything written. He had no law. There had been no Moses at this stage. That was to come much later. There were no scriptures. There was no tradition at all. He would have been aware of creation stories and flood stories from his own pagan background. But he certainly didn't read them in Genesis, because it wasn't written. How did he hang on with nothing? Our lives today, in terms of world news, apart from anything else, are dominated by Abraham. The whole Arab-Israeli conflict, which keeps us every now and then on tender hooks as to what's going to happen in the Middle East, is thanks to Abraham. The whole Muslim-Christian debate that rages around the world today, sometimes violently, is all because of Abraham. How did he hang on for 25 years with nothing? How often did he talk to God over those 25 years? He certainly didn't take his Bible down and read his Bible every morning. He didn't have one. He didn't recite the Shema. Or the law to himself every morning. It hadn't been written. He didn't make sacrifices according to the Levitical rules and laws. They hadn't been given. What was his communication with God like? What did his faith look like? It certainly didn't look anything like ours. Turning up in church. Sitting nice and neat and orderly. All looking to the front standing up when you're asked to, singing hymns when they're on the screen, reading your Bibles when I give the page note. It didn't look remotely like any of this. He didn't have a statement of faith to sign up to. He had nothing. I don't really know the answer to my question, and if you do, I'd be very keen to get your help on it. But it does seem to me that Abraham was a big picture believer. He was aware of God. 
He was aware of God's call on his life. That there were things that were happening to him in life and God had his finger on. And he was open to respond to that. And he was open to God and open to commune with God. With all the benefits that we have, I think part of the danger is that we become minutiae Christians. It's as if the more God has given us, and the more there is to read in the Bible, and the more there is to think about, and the more knowledge there is in the world, the more problems we have. We see more of the minutiae and less of the glory. We rely more on our traditions than our sense of awe at God. We lean more on the ritual than a God who created and inhabits the universe. Abraham never seems to have contemplated the idea that God didn't exist. But he was open to thinking that God was wrong. We would never contemplate the idea that God was wrong. We would more quickly assume he doesn't exist. I think, if anything, Paul understates Abraham's faith. I think it's incredible. And I think we, as we think about this subject and live our lives in the week that lies ahead, need to recover that openness to God and that sense of the bigness of God. Yes, God reveals himself to us supremely in the person of Jesus Christ, but how much do we even grasp of Jesus Christ? There is much to be explored. There is much for us to stand back in a sense of awe and wonder and be quiet for a while. And put our doubts and our uncertainties to work, but in perspective. And with God's help, we'll return to think about some of this next week.